So I want to tell you a little bit about Katera's story. She was born and raised in Afghanistan, and as a woman there, her rights were very few, if any. Most of her rights actually lie under the rights of her father and the other males in her life. And she's the focus of a recent documentary called A Thousand Girls Like Me. And the documentary follows her story as she attempts to bring charges against her father for abusing her for over a decade, resulting in multiple pregnancies and two children. She talks about how her father returned uh, from eight years away in, in Iran when she was 12, and where she expected to be met with love, she was found with profound evil and pain. She tried to tell her grandmother who blamed her and told her that she was over-exaggerating. She says, one day I locked myself in my room and called the police. They arrested him at 1 p.m., but he was back home by 4 p.m. She eventually told 13 of the village elders, uh, 11 who told her to forget it, one who told her to pray about it, and the other one who told her that she should go public. And so she decided to listen to the one who encouraged her to go public. One of the times she was being abused, her mother actually brought the village elders and the police to the house, and her father was arrested, and then charges were finally pressed. But it wasn't over, because the laws in her country were stacked against her. The judge himself accused her of lying, and even bringing charges against her father could endanger her. She could have faced charges uh, resulting in the death penalty for improper relations with family or for her children being born of a man that she wasn't married to. So during the trial, she actually had to go into hiding because her uncles on her father's side were threatening her life, and she was afraid they would track her down and kill her. And it was during this time that the documentary was filmed. The fact that she even brought charges was so monumental in this country. She was the first person ever to bring this type of crime to trial in Afghan history. Media all over the world picked up her story because women just don't do that where she is. So after a grueling trial, it all came down to a DNA test between her father and her children. And where DNA testing isn't common in Afghanistan, they actually had to export all the samples to the U.S. military base closest to them who conducted the test for free. And it turned out that her children were, in fact, her father's. And he was found guilty and sentenced to death. Now, Katera went through the agony of seeking justice, not only for herself, but also for her daughters and for other women in her country so that they could have a better future, so that they could have hope and not suffer the same fate that she did. She says in the documentary, maybe there are thousands of girls like me, and I believe there are much more, waiting in silence, waiting in pain, victims of corrupt people, corrupt systems, and not just there, but all over the world, and even in our own country. Now, the filmmaker was also an Afghan woman, and she says this about her own experience. Every woman in this country has a hundred owners, fathers, brothers, uncles, neighbors. They all believe they have the right to speak on our behalf and make our decisions for us. That's why our stories are never heard, but buried with us. Now, I share this story because it's a stark picture of injustice. It's one that we can all agree on is totally wrong. It's a vivid picture of what happens when judgment and law are skewed toward darkness instead of light, toward oppression instead of liberty, and toward wickedness instead of righteousness. Throughout her trial, um, who, was, who do you think was the single person that she was relying on to set things right? It was her judge. But she ended up with a judge who was a wild card, right? 
somebody who actually accused her of lying and possibly would have sentenced her to death where she was innocent. Now, our line from the creed today is that he will come again to judge the living and the dead. We believe that Jesus, who is conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of a virgin, suffered under Pontius Pilate, who died, who was buried, who was raised from the dead and ascended to heaven. We believe that this Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead. Now, judge is an unpopular personification of God, right? We like to think of God as provider, comforter, savior, prince of peace. But judge, often we feel like we could do without that aspect of God, right? But as one theologian's put it, judgment is unwelcome until we need our day in court. See, we don't like to think about God as judge because his final judgment of the living and the dead feels harsh and unfair to us. But in reality, we need a judge. We need Jesus to come back and judge. We need a judge. That's our first point today. We need a judge. Our experience tells us this, and so does the word of God. If you open the book of Psalms, they are filled with pleas for judgment on behalf of this broken world and our experience in it. Look at Psalm 35. David appeals to God as a righteous judge as he laments about his enemies who have, without cause, planned his destruction, who plot evil against him. He says this in verses 15 uh, 15 through 18. But at my stumbling, they rejoiced and gathered. They gathered together against me. Wretches whom I did not know tore at me without ceasing. Like profane mockers at a feast, they gnash at me with their teeth. How long, O Lord, will you look on? Rescue me from their destruction, my precious life from the lions. I will thank you in the great congregation, in the mighty throng, I will praise you. And now after we heard the story that I just shared, can you, can you think about what it feels like to be in that situation and how desperate you are for a righteous judge? God the judge witnesses your personal injustice. He looks on the world and says, he looks on our, he, he looks on, the word says. So knowing that our natural bent um, is to ask him for help, like when we, when we know that God is looking on, that he's all powerful, we are naturally going to ask him to do something about it. Like, will you look on this forever or are you gonna do something about it, judge? In Psalm 123, David's song appeals to God for relief from the contempt of their enemies who are at ease, he says. Essentially, relief from oppression. Starting in verse 3, he says this, Have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. God sees the oppressed. I preached on this psalm this past summer, and we talked about how God sees the oppressed. And as they cry out for mercy, or as we cry out for mercy for them, what we're really asking God to do is to righteously judge and depose their oppressors. A request for this type of mercy is a request for righteous judgment. In Psalm 9, David calls on God's judgment of the nations for their treatment of the poor. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, he says, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they 
are but men. David longs for a global judgment, a righting of wrongs that transcends national borders, that supersedes kingdoms, democracies, republics, empires, dictatorships. Now, what if David's pleas were in vain? What if there's no righteous judgment coming? If every corrupt verdict was kept secret for eternity? If every abused child was silenced ad infinitum? If every victim of violence, robbery, oppression, slander never got their day in court? If every perpetrator of these evils just carried on unnoticed, unpunished, and unhindered? What does hope contain for us if life never pushes back, light never pushes back darkness? In Romans 8, Paul talks about how all of creation groans waiting for this day. He says in Romans 8:20, "For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God." For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Paul's saying that the way things are is not the way things are supposed to be. We've touched on the first chapters, uh, first three chapters of Genesis a lot in the past few weeks, so I won't go into too much depth, but we know that creation was plunged into sin and darkness by our first parents when Adam and Eve believed the lie that they should have ultimate dominion over the earth. They attempted to turn God's authority structure on its head by disobeying him in hopes of being like him in his knowledge and rule. And because of their sin, the earth itself was cursed. And because we make terrible gods, we've often been a curse to the earth, its environment, its peoples, as we corruptly carry out God's order to fill the earth with life and maintain order. Paul says creation is groaning for the day when it will be set free from the bondage of corruption. Our very earth and life there and the life therein longs for the day when corruption is judged and removed. So Paul relates this groaning to childbirth, the pain of childbirth, this in-between time as we await God's judgment. This groaning with, without Christ's return would be similar to going through labor and having no child. And Paul says that we're groaning as we wait too. He says that Christians are waiting for adoption as sons, as children of God. Now, have we already been adopted into the family of God? Yes. Those who have believed in Jesus have been given the right to become children of God, John 1.12. But are we experiencing the fullness of that adoption now? No. There's more to come. So in the Psalms, we've seen how individuals, nations, oppressed classes await the Lord's righteous judgment. And then here, Paul's telling us that all creation is waiting beyond just humanity. All of creation Things are not the way they're supposed to be. Someone needs to set them right. Now, history has proven more times than we'd like that we're not capable of this type of judgment, the type of judgments that's required to bring about this type of change. 
We can work to take out oppressive regimes, but even when we do so, we do it corruptly, and we ourselves can become corrupt in the process. Some of history's greatest atrocities have been committed with misguided or even evil desires to purify the earth. We can attempt to restore the earth, better steward our natural resources, take care of the environment, and we should. But there's no doubt that the work is greater than us. We can institute righteous laws and upright judges, and those are the grace of God and they're glimpses of God's righteous judgment. But they too lack the power and the purity necessary. The power and the purity that we await from Christ's judgment. We can try to wipe out all the diseases that bring about the death and suffering of our loved ones and our own death and suffering. And we should, and that's a good thing. But we'll never get them all. We can try to delay aging. We can try to avoid death. But as Clint preached a couple weeks ago, we all still die. We need foundation-shaking judgment. We need foundation-shaking judgment. But see, there's a problem with foundation-shaking judgment. We need it, but we can't withstand it. No one can. Because even though we're victims of corruption, even though we suffer, we ourselves are corrupt. So if we simply desire and ask God that he would wipe away all the corruption from the world, we're actually asking that God would wipe us away as well. Do we really want that? Jesus says this in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Some of you on your ride here probably said worse things, right? (laughs) There are... There are a lot of places in the Bible that highlight our depravity, and Jesus does it a few times in the Sermon on the Mount, but I think this one convicts us all, right? You fool. That doesn't even sound like an insult to most of us, right? Especially not in Boston. (laughs) Not typically what you run into with road rage here. So Jesus is upping the ante when it comes to our thoughts of ourselves as righteous, Jesus is saying it's not just evil dictators, abusers, oppressors who are liable to the hell of fire. It's everyone because our hearts have the problem. And I think this is where our difficulty with judgment becomes inflamed. We want our day in court, but not as the guilty party. You see, ultimately, every sin, every act of evil is against God himself. When David murders Uriah, a member of his own military, because he got his wife pregnant, he says to God, against you and you alone have I sinned. It's the same when we hate our neighbor. Psalm 130 asks the question in verse 3, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is no one. But God has provided a way through his son, Jesus. We talked about that a few weeks ago when we talked about Jesus's crucifixion. We talked about how the penalty of sin was taken on the cross in our place by Jesus. That Jesus died for our corruption, innocent before God and humanity. And he took the guilty verdict of corrupt judges so that he could bear the punishment for truly guilty people before God. 
Our guilt was exchanged for his innocence. And for all those who have received him, who have trusted in him, have had their sentence carried out on the cross. The judgment meant for us has been laid on him. He was raised from the grave. Last week, we heard that he ascended into heaven to his rightful place on the throne at the right hand of the Father. And today we're hearing that he's coming back. Look with me at Acts 1 11 after Jesus ascends into heaven right in front of his disciples. They're looking up into heaven, looking up into the sky in awe, and an angel comes to them and says this, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way you saw him go into heaven. Jesus is coming again. And he's coming as the judge that we need, the judge that we long for, and the judge that we should be a little bit scared of, maybe a lot scared of. And his jurisdiction knows no boundary. The Bible has a lot to say about the second coming of Jesus and a lot of important things to say that we should investigate and try to learn about. Um, but I want to focus particularly on what our line of the creed focuses on, that Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead. And so we're not going to get into a lot of eschatological theories and, and get into the weeds with all that. We're going to talk about what the creed is talking about today. So we've talked about our need for a judge, and Jesus is the judge we need. So what will his coming judgment look like? When will he come? That seems to be a popular question, right? People are always trying to figure out when's the end of the world? When is Jesus coming back? But the answer is that no one knows. Jesus himself says this to his disciples as he's telling them about his coming in Matthew 24, 36. He says, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the son, but the father only. Paul writes to the Thessalonians in his first letter, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. So we know from that, that we won't know the day or the hour until it comes and that when it comes, it will be unexpected. So don't buy into any of the calculations or uh, any of the fear mongering out there. The Bible stresses mostly that we should be ready when he comes, ready at all times for him to come. So how will Jesus come? That's what the Bible talks more about, the how and the what of Jesus' second coming. The book of Revelation was written by the apostle John, who was banished to a remote island for his worship of Jesus. And one of the early church fathers says that he was banished after the Romans tried to boil him in oil. The apostle writes about the second coming of the just judge in Revelation 1.7. Can you see why he longs for his return? He says, behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Just like the angel said in Acts, Jesus will come on the clouds the same way he ascended. His coming will be unmissable. Jesus says in Matthew 24, For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Everyone will know. In that same chapter, Jesus says he'll return at a time when sin and lawlessness have reached new peaks and after a time of great tribulation. He says this, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. 
Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Jesus will return, and it will be unmistakable. And the big transition, the hallway, if you will, between now and our eternal state, between, between now and our forever, is this judgment. The Apostle John paints one picture of this forever for believers where not only will our bodies be restored by, in the resurrection, but the earth will also be restored. The creation that's groaning, waiting for the day when God's glory is revealed, waiting for the day when it's no longer subject to futility, the day where everything works the way it's supposed to. That creation will be made new. I'm not going to spend too much time talking about that either because I'm going to preach on the resurrection next month itself, and um, I want to save that. I don't want to get too far into that content. But in the beginning of Revelation 21, the Apostle John writes about what Jesus has revealed to him, and he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. He continues, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Christ will come again, and he will restore our bodies, our earth, and our unity with God. He will bring peace, but his pathway is judgment. Look further down in this chapter where John talks about this new dwelling place. He says, And I saw no temple in this city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun nor moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light the nations will walk, and the kings of earth will bring their glory to it, into it. And, it, and its gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. And then it says this, But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. There's no corruption in this city. And if there's no corruption in this city, that must mean the absence of, of corrupt people. And the promise of full redemption and freedom from our own corruption is for those who believe in Christ, who have received him, who have trusted him for salvation. Those who have chosen life apart from God have no such promise of redemption and no such citizenship in that place. Those whose names are written in the book of life, as John said, are those who have received the Son of God. The Apostle Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Those who haven't placed their trust in the good 
work of Jesus Christ, those who haven't recognized their need for a savior who would live the perfect life that they couldn't live and died the death that they should have died, taken their punishment, those who can't stand before the judgment seat and say, yes, that's my record, but my life is hidden in Christ. He paid my penalty. Those who refuse the gift of God will be judged according to their works, not Christ's works. And we know from Jesus' own words in the Sermon on the Mount that that way is doomed. The Apostle John expands on this in Revelation 20, starting in verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So you see, it's not about how much someone sins or doesn't sin or if wrongs outweigh rights. The Bible traces every evil in this entire world back to simply eating a piece of forbidden fruit. In and of itself, does that seem so bad? No. But rebellion against God ends in death and destruction. And the pathway for rebels to enter the kingdom of God is through the blood of Jesus. Only through Jesus can a rebel be redeemed. Because his promise is that he will change our core. He will blot out every transgression. He will renew what's been corrupted for free. It's not of you. It's not of me. I can't earn it. I can't outweigh my wrongs. And even if I could, I can't solve the problem of my own inward depravity, the thing that makes me do all the wrongs in the first place. As is, we would corrupt the new heavens and the new earth. I would. We need Jesus. I don't want to live in an eternity uh, that's like this, right? I need Jesus. This is admittedly a hard subject, and that's why it's often avoided or or completely rejected. And it's a subject that I preach with a lot of pain in my heart because my desire is to see everyone I know restored, thriving, free of pain, and delighting in Jesus for eternity. The fact that there are, the fact is though that there are people who, no matter how many times they hear the gospel, No matter how many times Jesus is presented to them as beautiful, they will continue to reject him. An eternity with God is just that. It's eternity with God. To reject him is to say, I want no part with you. And God's judgment is to give them what they want. Life apart from him. Life apart from his light. Life apart from his comfort a dwelling place where he does not dwell with them in peace. C.S. Lewis writes this in his book, The Problem of Pain. In the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. What are you asking God to do? 
to wipe out their past sins at all costs, to give them a fresh start, smoothing every difficulty and offering every miraculous help. But he has done so on Calvary at the cross. To forgive them, they will not be forgiven. To leave them alone, alas, I am afraid that is what he does. He adds this often quoted statement, the doors of hell are locked on the inside. There are two destinies, God's presence or God's absence. And there are two fates, God's grace or God's wrath. He has done the work of giving you his presence and his grace. If you haven't received it, receive it today. Let's rejoice, though, as those who have believed in Jesus, that we have a righteous judge who will restore the earth, where there will truly be peace, where there will be no trials brought about by victims like Katera, not because they're silenced by oppressors, but because oppression itself has been extinguished. At the same time, if you're a believer, let's mourn that darkness is real, and that it's blinded the eyes of those who refuse to see the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus. But let's not just mourn, because we have a role in God's plan. As long as we're here, and until he comes, he's given us a job. Before Jesus ascended into heaven, he gave his disciples a job. They asked him if he was going to, at that time, restore the kingdom to Israel, if at that time he would free them from Roman oppression and occupation. And he told them essentially, it's not for you to know the times and dates that the Father has fixed in advance. But then he gave them a job. He tells them this in Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. In Matthew 28, he tells his disciples, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age." 2 Peter 3.9 says this, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. It's God com God's command that during this in-between time, that his children would be sharing his gospel, would be sharing the good news of what Jesus has done, pleading with our neighbors to be reconciled to God. In 2 Corinthians 5.18, Paul says that through Christ, God has reconciled us to himself and given us the ministry of reconciliation. So it's not our job to judge, but it's our job to work, to share the truth, goodness, and beauty with the world around us. Because God's desire is that all would come to repentance. Let that add gravity to your day-to-day -day life. I'll leave you with one more C.S. Lewis, Lewis quote from his book, Weight of Glory. Listen to this. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom, whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors, 
or everlasting splendors. We believe that Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead. So let's rejoice, let's mourn, and let's get to work.